in today's episode of Rob Conrad Conversations. Charity Lee. February 4th, 2007 was the day she died. So yes, February 4th, it'll be 12 years. In a way, you know, I was self-medicating with drinking and, you know, the doctors kept me supplied with plenty of Xanax and I mean, I cried non-stop. It felt like for a year, a year and a half. It is a mother's worst nightmare. My son, who was 13 years old at the time, um, murdered his sister. He uh, beat her and choked her and ultimately stabbed her 17 times and then called 911 and turned himself in. But it turned out to be an even bigger tragedy. He, he wanted to kill somebody and he wanted to hurt me. I knew, Mama, if I killed you, you would suffer for about 15 or 20 minutes. But if I let you live, you would suffer for the rest of your life. A story of trauma healing, acceptance, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is very nuanced. Letting go of the anger and the rage. I never stopped loving him. And at the end of the day, you know, always make your decisions based on love. Join the conversation now. Welcome to Rob Conrad Conversations. Conversations with extraordinary people that motivate and inspire. Learn, grow, and impact lives. Subscribe now and hit the bell icon for a new conversation every week. Here comes the sunshine and burns away clouds like they never were. Hey and welcome, this is Rob Conrad from Switzerland. Uh, there are tragedies in life that seem so overwhelming and so impossible and so unlikely and so cruel that makes you wonder how anyone affected could ever possibly recover. And yet there are some amazing and extraordinary people who not only do recover, but somehow manage to find forgiveness and love and become stronger and manage to become happy again. And today's guest is such an extraordinary person because her story is one of incredible tragedy, but it's also a story of and an inspiration for exactly this kind of strength and hope. In February of 2007, Charity Lee's four-year-old daughter, Ella, was murdered. Not only murdered, but murdered by her own brother, Charity's 13-year-old son, Harris. Charity is here with me today and we'll talk about how she was able to find hope and happiness in the 11 years since this has happened, how she found forgiveness and love and how the Ella Foundation that she started in the name of her daughter is helping victims of trauma and violent crimes and mental illnesses. So I want to thank you for taking the time and thank you for sharing the story, Charity Lee. Good to be here. Thank you. I'm being attacked by a cat right now. Hold on. (laughs) Okay. It's good to be here. (laughs) So, uh, Charity, um, 
Next February, it will be 12 years since um, Ella passed away. So how are you today? Today I'm okay. Uh, February 4th, 2007 was the day she died. So yes, February 4th, it'll be 12 years. Um, I think about it. I have started to think about it. But um, I don't really dwell on it till about a month before the event. One of the ways that I have found to um, cope with this kind of tragedy and trauma is to try to, you know, be as present in the moment I have in front of me. Mm -hmm. um, it's taken a, a long time to be able to do that, but it does help. And now, as opposed to the past, say the first, I don't know, it took a good six or seven years to not be completely overwhelmed on anniversaries. But for the past four or five years, um, <clears throat> it's like uh, the dynamic has shifted. Instead of the uh, anniversaries owning me or taking over me, I've kind of taken over the anniversaries and I try to do something to honor Ella um, on those days. Mm. So, so what is it that you do in those days? Um, different rituals, I guess, for different anniversaries, because in my mind, the two big ones are always the day she was born and the day that she died. Mm -hmm. So on, on the anniversary of the day she died, which is the one coming up, and I do this for her birthday also. The mental process is I go through is this. It's just a different timeline. For some reason, usually around 24 hours before the anniversary, whether it be death or birthday, I start thinking, like, I'll look at the clock. And it's like I start to do a mental countdown. Like, you know, well, this time 12 years ago, like especially like on the day that she died, you know, we were doing this. And this time 12 years ago, according to what my son tells me, is about the time that he decided to kill her. And then when it gets to the time that, you know, we know that Ella died, that's when the majority of the pain comes in on that day. But then on her birthday, I stop and I think, oh, this is the time that I went into labor. And oh, this is the time that I just wanted somebody to shoot me because it hurt so bad. And this is the time that I saw her for the first time. And so it's kind of the opposite process, but they're both, you know, sad and overwhelming. So on her Death day, what I used to do when we were still living in Texas, when I was still living in Texas, was, um, you know, in the Hispanic culture, they have um, Dia de los Muertos, which is in November. But what they do is, you know, they, they build altars and they light candles and they set out food in, as a way to, you know, because they believe on that day they're, 
loved ones come back and you know they have a day on earth and they can commune with them so on her death date that's what i would do i would build her an altar and light her candles i still have the candle from her memorial service i light it you know one day a year on that birthday and and i try to honor her memory that way um now more recently you know in the past three or four years i will normally try to um roll out a new program through the foundation on her anniversary days whether it be a death day um, i'll try to not always but try to have a a new program ready to um, debut. Um, this year, I think we're going to try to have a, a new program ready. I'm working on a couple, um, but we'll just have to see how it goes. And then also now that I have a five-year-old, um, well, he doesn't participate in the death day rituals. He usually goes with his grandmother on those days. But he definitely participates in the birthday rituals because on the birthdays, we still, I still have her a cake made mm -hmm. that says happy birthday, Ella, you know, whatever age she would be. I write her a letter. I would be saying to her. Um, at that particular age this year, she would be what 17. I'm sure I would be telling her to stay out of trouble. <laughs> Please stay out of trouble. Um, so you know, you just you develop your rituals to to deal with the trauma, or one should develop rituals. Rituals help keep us sane. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Um. So. Maybe for the, for those who are not um, familiar with with the backstory or the story that the, the tragedy that had had um, has happened in two thousand and seven, um, could you explain your own words what happened on that day? Yeah, so I mean, in a nutshell, on February fourth, two thousand and seven, I had gone to work, um, and I had a had a babysitter who was at home with my children. And she left early and my son, who was 13 years old at the time, um, murdered his sister. He uh, beat her and choked her and ultimately stabbed her 17 times and then called 911 and turned himself in. Okay. And uh, what was the reason that he did that? The reason he gave then, or the reason we know now, um, or both? Both, I guess. Yeah, the reason he gave at the time, like immediately at the time on the 911 call, is he said that he um, essentially had a psychotic break and was hallucinating and thought that she was being attacked by some sort of demon and that was he was trying to save her and then at some point he realized that it was ella 
Um, but that all turned out to be a lie. And um, it was quite different than that. Now, what we know is that in a nutshell, he, he wanted to kill somebody and he wanted to hurt me. His original plan was to murder us both, mm-hmm. but he told me later that he realized after killing his sister um, that it was much harder than he thought it would be to murder somebody, not mentally or emotionally, but physically harder to murder somebody than he realized. And since he and I were about the same size at that time, since he was just 13, um, he was worried that he wouldn't be able to kill me and he would be the one who was hurt. So he realized at some point, and this is all, I mean, this is all from conversations that Paris and I have had. I'm not like putting words into his mouth. This is things he's told me. He realized at some point that if he let me live, he told me basically, he was like, I knew mama, if I killed you, you would suffer for about 15 or 20 minutes. But if I let you live, you would suffer for the rest of your life. And why does he want to make you suffer? Um, that's a really good question. Paris, I mean, there were things that I had done as a mother. You know, I had, when I was a teenager, I had drug addiction issues and had been sober for 12 years. Uh, yeah, 11, or 11 and a half years or so. Um, well, let me tell you, I hadn't had any problems with addiction for 11 and a half years, but when he was about 11 and a half years old, maybe 12 years old, I relapsed for a six month period of time. Um, and he was justifiably, you know, very angry about that. He, you know, had a really good mom for 11 and a half years. And then all of a sudden, you know, he had this mom it was quite traumatic for him, I'm sure. Um, But, you know, he has since admitted that he had his first homicidal thought around the age of eight years old, which is you know, around the time his sister was born. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we really understand enough about people like Paris to, to know why they want people to suffer other than it just, it seems to be their preference. And, you know, he thought that he had issues with, me or he did have issues with because we I have some reasons but even when you have a reason like that you're still just like but why you know why did it have to be this way why did it have to be 
your sister, like, you know, especially 12 years later, looking back on it, I know a lot more about his mental state of mind, his emotional limitations, but unless we think that way, there's only so far I can go in explaining it before I too get to why, like why? So, so um, Paris has been diagnosed meanwhile um, with schizophrenia. No, no, no. Or, or he, he has no diagnosis of schizophrenia. The general consensus, he has not been formally diagnosed as an adult because we started to have testing done when he was an adolescent. Mm -hmm. But he shut the testing down when the results started coming back showing that he has all the characteristics of someone with a diagnosis of antipersonality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. In layman's terms, and Paris and I both, we agree on this, don't necessarily like the term because when you say it, it makes people think of like, it narrows down what people think about him, but in layman's terms, he is a sociopath. A sociopath, okay. Mm -hmm. um, you're still in touch with Paris on a regular basis, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what I found most surprising when I first heard about um, your story was that um, you've forgiven your son and um, you love your son. Very much. So, so, so um, for, for something as, as terrible as this to happen, um, it seems surprising that you can say you, you still love your son because he, um, no, obviously what he did was, was the most terrible thing that, that he could do to you and he did so intentionally. So it wasn't in a fit of, you no know, drug induced rage or something. He did so, he planned to do it and, and he did so intentionally. So um, uh, did it take long for you to, to love him or did you st stop loving him at some point when this happened or, or was it just a motherly love that just continued? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I never stopped loving him. Now, was that difficult some days? Yes, it was very difficult, very many days. And it still is sometimes. He is not an easy person to deal with. He is, well, he's a sociopath and he's a narcissist. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, even just dealing with a narcissist and a narcissist alone is very difficult because everything's about them, me, 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 you know? And then he has these, you know, sociopathic tendencies on top of it. And, I mean, there are days and there have been months at times where I'm like, you know what, kiddo, I love you, but I'm taking a break. Like, I, I need some space mentally to deal with you or to build up the strength again to deal with you, especially when he was younger after he had committed the murder. But I didn't ever stop loving him, no matter how much rage, and there, there was a lot of rage, um, 
he was always my son first. And when Paris was born, I made him a promise that I would love him no matter what. And that I would always do the best I could to be the best mom I could to him. Now, you know, obviously I wasn't able to always keep that second part of the promise because I did relapse and parents do make mistakes and they don't always do what's best for their child. Even, you know, a parent of an average kid may It came to the loving part. You know, I, I grew up feeling that the love my parent had for me was very conditional. And so I was determined that my child was not going to grow up with that feeling. And so when he murdered his sister... I thought about all the times that I screwed up as a kid. And, and I mean, in some of my screw ups, you know, obviously I never killed anybody, but I came pretty close to killing myself more than once. And, you know, I thought about how much I needed a didn't necessarily agree with me, but I knew you had my back. So that's what I wanted to be for Paris. Okay. Uh, sorry, I, I, I just lost you there for a second. The connection oh. dropped a bit. Okay. Um, um, uh, after you talk about the um, unconditional love that you want to give him, could you repeat what you last said? Yeah, I just, I didn't really feel like I got that growing up. So I just, I became determined that that's what I was going to give my child. You know, I made a promise to him. And I mean, for me, people ask me all the time, like, how did you do it? How do you do it? And I kind of am like, well, how do you not? That's my baby. I carry him in my body. I, you know, was there with him for 13 years. Even when I relapsed, I was still struggling to be a mother, you know, and it's just like, how could you not? As a parent, the way that I think about parenting is you don't have a baby and say, well, I'm going to love you as long as you do A, B, C. But if you do this, uh-uh, that's it. I'm just turning off that love. That's just not how it, it worked for me. Um, and... I mean, the love that I have for my children, all three of my children, it's very fierce and it goes very, very deep. And, you know, there was also the fact that, like, I am his mother. And yes, I was his victim also. But he was still my child. He was still my baby, my firstborn, deeply loved him and felt connected to him still do and I you know I was the adult I was his mother and he needed he was 13 years old he was still a child he needed 
a mother. He needed a parent. Now, you know, I, I had to deal with the rage. I certainly, certainly had rage. But I tried to, as best I could, not take it out on him. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't know how angry I was or he didn't know my feelings on the matter. I've always been a very honest and blunt person with my children and the people in my life. But it meant not you know, taking it out on him in an inappropriate way. I, I have a story I always tell. There was um, one time I went to go visit Paris, and this was before he was sentenced. The investigation was still ongoing. You know, we were still learning things about the fact that what he did was intentional. Um, like it wasn't like things were getting any better, things were getting worse. And in the room next to us was a girl. She was maybe 15 or 16 years old. And she had gotten a visit from her father. And he was just, I mean, he was yelling at her. And he was calling her all these horrible names that I would never call my child and just talking to her like she was a piece of trash. And all she had done, and it's okay, but all she had done was skip school and smoke some pot. And I, I mean, he was yelling so loud, he was like interrupting our visit, you know? And I finally just couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, I got up and I walked over there to their little visitation room. And I was like, would you please just shut up and quit talking to your daughter that way? She, she skipped school and smoked some pot. Big deal. Does she need like, you know, like big deal. I'm like, I'm trying to have a visit with my child. And I like went and I sat back down and I remember thinking like, and how am I not yelling at Paris like this? Because I certainly have every right to do so. Like even at I think I lost you. There we go. But it just it just didn't feel right. Okay. And um, what did, did, did Paris um, give any explanation in the beginning, or, or did he just back up from, from what happened? Uh, how was it first time? Um, Paris, um, to be honest, Paris was a little <laughs> asshole <coughs> for a good four or five years after the murder, maybe even longer. He didn't really start to mellow out in his treatment towards me till he was about, I don't know, I guess 19. And what it took was 
me reaching the point finally where I was like, you know what? I was like, you're not a child anymore when he was about 18. And um, I was like, and until you, you know, uh, I was like, you can even fake it, you know, (laughs) like until you, like I, I established some much, clearer boundaries because he was not a child anymore and he kind of kept stepping over those boundaries and so I just didn't talk to him for a year Okay. and yeah. after that I think he was like he got a, a deeper appreciation of oh <laughs> like this is what having my mom does for me because mm. again he's a narcissist so it all comes back to you know what Attention what it does for him. Um, But after that, he started to kind of mellow out. But when he first was arrested, he, um, he was cruel. It was like all of a sudden, he was like a completely different person. I mean, people have a hard time believing me, I think sometimes, but Paris was a great kid. I mean, he was loving and affectionate with me. He um, was very helpful with his sister. Um, I mean, we did have, I mean, we had the, we had arguments and things like that. He was still my child. And then things were rough and he was, angry definitely during the time that I relapsed but there was nothing major that you know somebody could look at and be like oh like that's what happened um but afterwards it was like he was a completely different person in fact he told me one time I guess it was four or five months after the murder. And I mean, I was, I was a wreck. Like I was a wreck. I was severely traumatized and trying still to navigate the, you know, criminal justice system that I really knew nothing about at the time. And and, you know, figure out, like, what happened to my son so I can get him help. Like, how do I fix him, you know? Um, and grieving Ella, you know, there were, it was like there was two parts of my brain, trying one part that had to figure out who Paris is and how to deal with him and how to help him, and then this other side of me, that was just completely overwhelmed with grief. But I was also grieving Paris too, even though he was still here because I was grieving the child that I had. Mm-hmm. This one, I didn't even know who it was. There was a time about four or five months after the murder where I went to go see him and I can't remember what had happened. Something had happened that day. I found out something or other. I was always finding out new stuff. 
And I just, I couldn't stop crying. Mm. I mean, I, just, I couldn't stop crying. And, you know, I think I asked him something like, you know, Paris, just, you know, just what the hell? Like, how did this happen? Like, you've got to give me something because I'm like, I need something to hold on to. And he just kind of looked at me and no empathy or compassion or pain on his face for the fact that like his mother was literally crying on the table and he just had this grin on his face and he was like you know he goes y'all are just also fucking stupid and I was like what and he was like y'all have all just been so fucking stupid and he was like all this time you thought I was intelligent and handsome and charming and artistic and creative and helpful. He was like, you're all so fucking stupid. He was like, none of you saw the real me. Mm -hmm. And I remember just looking at him and being like, no, no. Like the way that I see it is you're the stupid one now because you are all of those things, but you chose to throw all of that away mm -hmm. right? and become whatever this is. <sighs> so he was quite cruel for quite a while, and he only got worse as time went on. Did he ever apologize so. for what he Oh, not really. I mean, when he was younger, every now and then he would be like, Mom, I'm sorry. Like, you know, like he had eaten the last of the potato chips and left the bag in the closet or something. Um, but he is not capable of a sincere apology because he's not sorry and I mean we have very blunt conversations now about the fact that he, he just doesn't feel empathy he told me the other day we were talking about you know who he is um, and he, he was like mom he was like you know I know that when I think about what I did to Ella, I'm supposed to like open this drawer somewhere inside of me and there's empathy and guilt. And he was like, but when I open that drawer, it's just empty. It's just not there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I know. I mean, I've come to accept that about him. What, what, I mean, I'm sure you've asked yourself the questions a million times, but was there anything ever that, in hindsight, could have foreshadowed what would happen? Okay, so this is what I tell people all the time. There are little things that happened, but even if you add them all together, you still wouldn't come to the conclusion that this is who he is now. And at the time that they happened, it's very... Uh, at the time they happen, it's not one of those things that would make you go, oh, warning, warning, warning. Mm -hmm. um, 
like some of it can be explained away by, oh, well, you know, that's what kids do. Or when he got a little bit older, you know, oh, well, you know, he's a teenager now and he's trying to figure out who he is. And so the two that I'm thinking of are when he was little, maybe three or four years old, <clears throat> my mother had a farm in North Carolina up in the mountains and the house had, um, it was kind of built into the side of a mountain. And so the porch of the house was really high off the ground, probably a good 25 or 30 feet. Mm -hmm. um, and it was raining really hard one day. And whenever it would rain really hard there <clears throat> in you know a particular time of the year, frogs would just come out from everywhere. Frogs mm -hmm. look like the plague. Um, and I walked outside on the porch, and Paris had a bucket. Mm -hmm. Paris had a bucket full of frogs. And he was, again, he was three, four years old. He was taking the frogs one by one and throwing them over the rail mm -hmm. to the concrete driveway below. And, you know, the frogs were dying. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, Paris, whoa, what are you doing, you know? And he was like, well, I just like the sound that they make when when they hit the bottom. And I'm like, okay, no, honey. Like, we, we need to talk about this. Like, you know, those are frogs. They have, they can feel hurts and it's killing them. And, and he was like, oh, okay. And, you know, was it cruel? Yes. Have I seen other children do cruel things to animals when they're that age? Yes. Yeah, I just want to say that something that probably a lot of kids do because they, they just don't know better. I mean, it's not that like he was, he was uh, intentionally torturing them with sticks and poking their eyes out to, to make yeah. them suffer. Just like something like they made a nice sound, like, like kids throw eggs over, you know, all around the kitchen because it sounds nice like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those moments that you have. I mean, I remember doing things when I was three or four years old, like, you know, pouring salt on a slug to see, you know, what happens to it. I, that, now as an adult, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. That had to hurt so bad. But when you're young, you just, you don't know. And, you know, whatever misgivings I had or whatever, you know, emotional reaction that engendered in me at the moment was put to rest because there were a couple of frogs that had not died instantly. And then I had to tell my son, you know, Paris, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, we shouldn't be doing this because look, like this one is still alive and it's in pain and it's hurting and now we have to put it out of its misery. We can't let it continue to live in pain like this. Mm -hmm. And Paris was like, I can't do that, Mama. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, he, he could not. And so I had to, you know, put the frog out of its misery. And then when he was older, there was an incident 
where I discovered that he had been wearing some of my undergarments. Now, in our household, it has always been like we have no problem with people who are gay or lesbian or transgender or transvestite. It's like, you know, people, as my five-year-old Phoenix says, you know, I do me and you do you. <laughs> That's kind of our mentality, you know? So I didn't have a problem with the fact that he had been experimenting. You know, I had often wondered when he was growing up if Paris might be gay or bisexual. And so when I discovered my undergarments in his room, we just sat down and we had to talk about it. You know, why, why are these in here? And, you know, do you have questions? Because he was 13. Like, do you have questions? And, you know, is there anything that you want to ask me? Or, you know, and we decided together because I, he told me that the reason he had them is because he wondered what it was like to be female. Mm -hmm. and more specifically, he wondered what it was like to be me. Well, I didn't really have a good answer to that because it wasn't an issue that I had never dealt with. I've always been fine with being a girl. I feel like one inside and out. So we agreed together to um, have him go talk to a counselor, and I made sure he he knew that it wasn't because I thought there was anything wrong with what he was doing. It was just that I felt like, you know, it, it, it was something that because I didn't know much about it and that because he was a 13-year-old boy, he might feel more comfortable working through it with somebody who, you know, understood it better. Because, I mean, I don't care how close you are to your, your child. I'm sure it's hard for a 13 year old boy to be talking to his mother about any kind of sex. <clears throat> you know? So he agreed that, you know, he would like to have somebody else besides me to talk to it with the door open all the time that he could still talk to me. But um, he murdered Ellen the day before his appointment. So. Okay. And now we know that there are some, sexual and sexuality issues that are part of Paris's current mindset. I mean, we know that now, didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Um, I think I lost you there. After he killed it, sure. Oh, um, uh-huh. So the day before it happened, was there anything unusual? Was there anything that you say change in behavior or? Yeah, the weekend that it all happened, he, um, he was being very difficult to deal with. He was, you know, I had to work most of that weekend. Um, and he, snuck out of the house one night to go down to the local skateboard park and he um 
I didn't know about it. The babysitter didn't tell me. This was the night before he the next day when Ella told me. Uh, that, you know, Paris had gotten in trouble for sneaking out. And then, then that day that he actually killed her, he was very angry with me because, you know, he had been, I mean, there was consequences for his behavior. And um, he also was angry because Paris was given an allowance at the beginning of every month mm-hmm. just you know he um and the and the reasoning behind giving it to him all up front at the beginning of the month was so he could also learn how to budget and manage mm-hmm. money well he had gone to the mall that weekend with the babysitter and ella and he had spent all of his money at one time Mm-hmm. And he was mad at me because I had told him, "You okay, no, that's not the point of getting an allowance like this. You have to make it last all month long. <clears throat> and so what I had told him was, you need to pick one or two things that you would like to keep now, and the rest we're taking back. Mm-hmm. So you get your money back. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, learn how to budget yourself. Well, he was really angry about that. Um, and I remember, you know, when I, when I left home that day to go to work, he would barely talk to me. And I also remember that the, the very last thing I said to my son when I left was I gave him a big hug, which he did not return. And kiss which he did not return and I remember telling him you know Paris I love you and we've gone through hard times before and we've gotten through them and so we're going to get through this too Mm -hmm. um, and then that was you know the last I saw him before I saw him at the police station the next day but, but none of this sounds unusual. I mean, 13 years old playing with their sexuality in one way or the other, or, you know, being, being mad, at, mad for being grounded or whatever. It's, it's I mean, it's oh, 13 year old worries. I mean, that's, that's nothing unusual. So there was really nothing. And it, it seems strange um, that it's almost like you're talking about two different kinds of persons. So like the, the, the person before the person after, like those would be, two completely different people. And, and I mean, I've seen a documentary and there are snippets in there where Paris playing with the daughter and seemed like a perfectly normal, normal child, not like a grumpy recluse or something. So, so it's, it's really, it's really, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really yeah. Cool yeah. But you know, Paris is a very smart child and now grown man. And, <clears throat> I mean, you have to remember that in like those home movies you saw where he's playing with Ella, he was already having homicidal thoughts, you know? At the age of eight or nine, he fantasized about um, decapitating me mm-hmm. because he had gone on PlayStation restriction. And mm-hmm. so, 
he had, you know, worked out this fantasy where he was just going to decapitate me while I slept. And then he and Ella would get to do whatever they wanted all weekend. And then he was just going to call his grandmother when it was time to go to school. And, you know, evidently I'm going to be in the bed decapitated this whole time. Mm -hmm. So he was already thinking homicidal thoughts, but kids... I mean, kids aren't dumb. People are always like, oh, well, you know, how kids are so innocent. And kids are smart. Kids know that you don't go around, you know, saying to adults, hey, I'm thinking about decapitating you, you know, because then the adults are going to be like, oh, whoa, okay. Like, well, hopefully the adults are going to be like, oh, we, we need to, you know, address this issue. So, I mean, for people, you know, that have a hard time believing, like, well, if he was thinking that, he would have been acting this way. Well, no. Oh. Some do act out, but, but not all of them. Um, um, I think I lost, lost you there for a second. Um, yeah, um, um, so, I mean, there's there's nothing that that seems like um, yeah, and unusual when you when you hear hear about it. So, uh, w when all of this happens, I mean, how did you how did you cope? How did you how did you cope and how did you heal? I mean, the first time, the first. First moments must have been like in like a bad dream that never happens. But but how did you cope over time and heal over time? What was the the process? Well, in my own way, I became a lot like Paris in the fact that it was like I was living for different people. Um, on the one hand, I was. I'm trying to think what's like the best way to describe it because even to me, I still have moments where I'm like, how did I do all that? Um, on the one hand, you know, I was, I was falling apart. I lost 35 pounds in two weeks. I was so traumatized, um, you know, that I was, I, I think I was in shock for, like actual shock for a, a, quite a while. I couldn't speak without stuttering. I mean, I cried nonstop. It felt like for a year, a year and a half. I used to go to the grocery store, just, you know, and, you know, just tears running down my face because everything I would see would trigger it. You know, kids with their parents, kids arguing with their parents, kids anywhere, just, you know, triggered everything. I was, especially after Paris was sentenced and, you know, was sent away, you know, I was self-medicating with drinking and, you know, the doctors kept me supplied with plenty of Xanax and sleeping pills. Um... But at the same time, I was doing everything I could to still be a parent and 
and mother my child and dealing with lawyers. I mean, I was being investigated also mm -hmm. by the, you know, child welfare authorities and the police. And I mean, I hadn't committed any crime, but I was being investigated. And so I had all of, all of that, but I think really what it comes down to, you know, I have a, a book coming out soon, hopefully soon. And I've been, you know, working on it and, you know, it, it has to do with those early days after Ella died and, um, you know, kind of what led up to the creation of the foundation. And, and the theme that I'm noticing as I'm going back and looking at my own writings and stuff from the time is the way that I dealt with it was I crossed, like, I didn't try to stop myself from feeling any of it. Like I really had a choice, but you know, instead of running away from it, I dove into it. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm going to be angry, be angry, you know, who cares what everybody thinks I have a right to be angry. Or if I need to cry all day long, cry all day long. Who cares what people think when you're at the grocery store crying on their apples, you know, like dive into it. But when it comes time to make decisions at the end of the day or when it's, you know, decision time, make all of those decisions and base all of your actions on the fact, you know, base it on the love you feel, not the anger, not the rage. And I think that's what kept me going, staying focused on the fact that I loved my children because I also... You know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, you don't speak for Ella or where is Ella's voice? And I don't think those people understand it. <clears throat> the way that I speak for Ella and the way that I've always spoken for Ella is to not become like Paris. To focus on love because I made a promise to Ella the night that she died when I'm real big about keeping promises to my kids. I think that's why I make them because I know once I say I promise, I'm going to do everything I can to actually keep that promise. Um, but I promised her that I would make her, that I promised her I wasn't going to let her die for nothing. Mm -hmm. I would make something meaningful come out of this. And I think that people who say that I, you know, I shouldn't still love Paris or I shouldn't have forgiven him or I don't speak for Ella. I don't think they understand that the way that I've handled all of this has been for Ella and because of Ella, because if Ella had grown up, up the kind of person I would have wanted her to be somebody who's loving and compassionate and forgiving and tries to help people. I mean, so, so I, I stayed focused on that. I guess through a lot of it, I've just, I've had my promises to keep me going. I've had promises that I've had to keep. So even when I didn't want to, I, you just, you go back to your promise. Um, in, 
in the first time, and um, we talked about this when we had our first conversation, um, there was no help from anyone externally. So he didn't receive any help from social workers. He didn't receive any help from police, from, from the system, let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. And so this is something your organization um, tries to offer support for victims of, of um, violence and crime. Yeah, hold on, I think I... Yeah, I think... I think yeah, now you're back. <laughs> Yeah, so my organization does try to offer help to all people involved. Um, you know, I, I, I received help from certain individuals in as much as they were able to help me through a situation like this. I mean, you know, it's not a very common situation. I, I looked up the statistics on it one time and According to the, you know, Federal Bureau of Investigations here, there's about, and it's, it's remained pretty much at this number over the years, about 35 cases a year of siblings killing siblings. And of those cases, under the age of 18, and of those cases, <clears throat> the number of, siblings who intentionally kill another sibling are like one. I think maybe Paris was the one in 2007. I mean, it's just, it's not common. So most people aren't even, I mean, the individuals helped as much as they were able to, but the, the systems in place, they were horrible. I mean, like I just said, I was investigated by the police. I was investigated by the child welfare services. They wanted to press charges against me for child neglect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there was no help there. So what I do through the foundation is try to give people who are going through trauma or dealing with incarceration, that kind of support without judgment. Um, so how does the support look like in, in, in practice? Well, it looks like different things for different people. I mean, sometimes support means just listening to a mother, you know, whose child has been murdered or listening to a mother whose child is sitting in prison or starting support groups for whole groups of people who have experienced that kind of thing to get together and talk to one another or support means has meant in the past that I've made visits to death row for you know, mothers who aren't able to go see their children as often as they would like. And, you know, you don't want to leave somebody sitting there on death row alone for months at a time without a visit from a kind face. Or, you know, teaching classes. I've taught tons of classes to women who are you know, dealing with addiction issues and trying to get their children back. I mean, it's been 12 years. We've, the foundation, or I have done through the foundation so many things, it's 
hard to name them all. We've had, um, you know, groups for children whose parents are incarcerated where they get to um, write their own story, kind of rewrite their own story. It was called the I Have a Voice program. Mm -hmm. They would come in and we would talk about like a particular topic on that day. Like, if you know, how does it feel when you go see your parent in prison? Like, you know, and, and they would get to tell you their experience of their story and then they write it down. And then at the end of it, you know, we, we put together a book and they got to tell their own story, take back their story express themselves sometimes for the first time about how it all was affecting them. I've became a certified crisis interventionist and I used to ride with the San Antonio Police Department officers out on patrol and offer crisis intervention services at crime scenes and you know, I do speaking where I go and I tell my story and, you know, open up for people ask me whatever questions they want to ask. I think I just lost you again yep. for a second. Uh, right now we're doing a program in town called uh, Let's Talk and they are community discussions, you know, we have events that are open to the community and their various topics are discussed. So right now we're doing let's talk um, mental health, mental illness. <clears throat> We've done one on family trauma. We've done the next one we're doing is on childhood trauma. And then we're doing one on uh, mental illness and people of color, mental illness and faith, mental population, do all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um one of the things I'm sure many people are wondering is um, if something like that would happen to me, I would not have the strength to to cope with this. I'm sure that's something that many people um, think. You know, if, if a situation like this happens, you you kind of pulled through and and um, um, became who you are now. But I'm sure a lot of people think, okay, I, I couldn't do this. So, so what do you tell these people? Is the, is it can is it something that you can learn? Is there process of, of you know coping with situations like this that you can learn is there certain are there certain steps that you can you can go through that that help people or what's your experience yeah i mean um you know i just a couple of months ago i or actually last month i went to texas and i gave a talk I actually gave the talk to the agency uh, that had my child incarcerated for six years in the juvenile justice system. Okay. And they asked me to talk about like how to build family resiliency. And so I talked a lot about resiliency because that's what it comes down to is resiliency. You know, are you resilient? And people think that you're either resilient or you're not. People are, I mean, because people do say that to me, like, oh, I could never deal with what you deal with. 
And I'm like, you know, resiliency is not a superpower. It's not like, you know, I'm some sort of genetic mutant that has super resiliency. It's something that can be learned. It can be taught. It can be learned. And even if you don't think you have it, you probably do. Because usually what I tell people, I'm like, well, you're sitting here talking to me, aren't you? And I'm sure your life has not been perfect. You know, a lot of times I'll get people in a crowd just, you know, I'll just say to them, okay, I want you just to take a minute. We're going to take a minute and you definitely don't have to call any of this stuff out. Mm -hmm. I want you all to stop and I want you to bring to mind the worst thing that has ever happened to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can see everybody, most people, they like, you know, do the little eye thing and, and you know, they have something in their head. And then I'll ask them some questions like now, how many people know that this happened to you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see them thinking some more and I'm like, how do you think it would be different if you had told people or you told somebody now, you know, and then we just start working through steps. Like the way you survive these things, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not rocket science. You have to have a will to live, which most of us, in fact, I would say all of us, even the, those that commit suicide, have the will to live. It's just, it goes against every instinct we have to not want to continue living. And then most of us have something that motivates us to keep doing that other than the will to live. People continue to struggle with their mental health for many reasons. And a lot of those reasons are because, you know, I have children or I have people that love me or I have people that I wouldn't want to hurt that I love or, you know, I'm not going to let that son of a bitch get the best of me. I mean, that was part of it for me. You know, parents wanted to destroy me. I was like, well, I'm not giving you that. Yep. So it's it's something that can be learned how to how to survive trauma. And then once you learn how to survive it, then you can learn how to use it to thrive again, to recreate a life again, to have a life again. again. rule that says just because something terrible happens to you, you have to continue to feel like crap for your entire life. Yeah. But so sh- sharing the experience seems to be a very important part of the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure many people are afraid um, that when they share their experience, they, they might open themselves up to, to whatever form of criticism or aggression. And then something that 
I've also noticed when you look at you know, videos about your story in a documentary or about your speeches, there, there are a lot of people that kind of, you know, leave mean comments and say, ah, oh, she was a terrible mother and it's all her fault and she sort of should have seen that earlier and there were, you know, warning signs or whatever not to, probably none of them know you, but, but you know, there are people always know better. <laughs> say it again, please. They do. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people think, they know. I just had like dealing with that kind of stuff. I mean, it's definitely a concern when it comes to opening yourself up. Even if it, I mean, even if you're not doing it on the level that I'm doing it, and you just go and you share it with somebody else, you know, I mean, there is, there's the concern of not being accepted or being judged or, you know, somebody entire, like changing their entire perception of you in, and those are all very valid concerns because, I mean, as you saw from, you know, what you saw when you were looking at my stuff, there are plenty of people in the world who will try to hurt you at your time of vulnerability. But I guess the way that I think about it, my view of it is this too is part of learning resiliency. I mean, I have a friend who tells me that she's constantly amazed by the fact that after everything I've gone through in my life that I can still be so naive. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not naive. I just choose now to focus on the positive. And every comment or person that tries to hurt me or hurt you know the person that's opening up has been an opportunity to learn <laughs> that um that i don't have to let somebody else to define me and what happened to me that it's my story so that's an opportunity to learn confidence it's an opportunity to tell that person, well, look at how you're acting. That says more about you than it does about me. Like I'm up here on the high road and you're like way down here in the gutter. And then to say, you know, I'd like to help you with that. Cause usually the people that reach out to me and are so hateful, I'm like, if there's anything I can do to help you let go of your anger, you just let me know. Mm -hmm. I don't, they don't like that either. But, um, in my opinion, in my experience, for me personally and with the people that I work with, the first thing that has to be done, or maybe not the first thing, but it has to be done eventually to deal with trauma and anger and rage is to put it out of you. Mm -hmm. Like to, to put it into the light. I tell people that the only way to get rid of darkness is to bring it into the light. So in what way could this, in what ways could this happen? So in what ways could you bring out what I've happened to you? Like writing it down or, or talking to other people or, or what could be those ways? I mean, it's different for everybody. You know, it's, I've always been a in your face talker kind of person. I mean, even, 
you know, when I was younger and when I was a teenager and I had a, you know, I was addicted to heroin and I had an issue with the whole, you know, shooting up heroin and stuff. When I finally got sober, I mean, I was talking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. To the point where my mother was like, do you have to go around telling everybody you used to be a junkie? And I'm like, yeah, because it's who I am. It helped make me who I am now. It's, there's no shame. Like that's the first, I think that's part of it, putting down the shame associated with it all. But for different people, I mean, there's different ways that fit their way of being, writing, telling a friend, you know, my grandmother, when I was little, whenever I would get upset about something, she'd have me write something down on a piece of paper and then we'd set it on fire and let it go, you know, and she's like, that's it. It's, you know, it's out of you now. It's, let it go. But there has to be some process of getting it out, you know? And then once that happens, hopefully what happens, and, and you know, this is kind of where the learning skills part comes into it. You don't just go tell anybody. Like, you know, you have to decide who is, who can you trust with this pain and that's where you know the more intellectual side comes down like well I obviously can't tell this person because they're probably going to do this or but maybe I could go talk to Bob over here um so, and then you know hopefully you find that once you start letting it out to people that can be trusted even if it's a complete stranger right? Sometimes strangers can help you more than people close to you. Um, that they help you to carry that weight. And then you start to realize, okay, well, I've got people helping me. The weight isn't as heavy as it used to be. Because I can guarantee you, because I've worked with some families for a very long time, that I'm not going to say that time heals all wounds, because it doesn't. Some wounds are always going to be wounds. But I can guarantee you and promise if you start putting your pain out there, I think I just lost it. Start putting it out there. Start sharing it somehow that as time goes on and, and learning about, you know, different ways to cope with trauma, as time goes on, your perspective on it will shift and you will reach a point in life where you realize, oh my gosh, like I still have a life and you know, it can be a better life. It doesn't have to be a worse life. You know, my friend calls me naive, but I just say I'm an optimist. Why naive? Why naive? In what way naive? She just thinks I'm naive because, you know, still after everything that's happened to me in my life that, you know, I still trust people and have faith that people are, you know, good. And, you know, I tell her that it's not so much being naive that, that it's just been my experience that I understand better now having gone through so much myself that I, everybody struggles. Mm-hmm. Right, and so 
And I think people essentially are good. And so I think if you operate in the world in such a way that brings out that good in people, then, you know, you're going to get that good. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's something we, we um, talked about earlier um, in our first conversation was um, you also work with people who are, where it's hard to believe that they're good, like, Mm. For example, like child molesters, for example. So, um, especially when you're parents, um, it's hard to see. Hey, this is a good person because of what that person has been doing. Yet, you said it's important to, in a way, accept these people and and um, accept the good part of these people. So, can you talk a little bit about that and um, you know your experience from your work uh, with the organization foundation? Yeah, so I think maybe let's clarify things a bit. I try not to look at people or even situations anymore as this is good, this is bad. I think those words are very um, judgment-laden, you know? Like you hear, oh, this person's good, and that's just kind of judgy. And then, oh, this person's bad. Well, that's a judgment too, right? And in my work and in the way that I choose to go through life, I don't want to judge people. Mm-hmm. That's not really my place. I don't want people judging me. I hate when people judge me. I mean, and it works both ways. There's people that are like, oh, she's an evil monster and she should never have bread. I, I get people telling me that. You know, I don't like those judgments, but then I also have a problem sometimes with all the people who are like, oh my God, you are amazing. You are like this, you know, wonderful human being. Cause then I'm like, yeah, I've got bad, you know, like, like, you know, that's human. And so I try not to, even though I just, you know, use them, try to move away from the, the good and bad. What I do is I try to see the humanness in everybody, right? And all human beings are capable of terrible acts. Mm-hmm. We may not believe it, or we may not want to admit to it, but all human beings are capable of terrible things, whether it be because of a mental disorder or something going on in the environment that lends, you know, that tends to make a human being, um, you know, just, just do terrible things. So I try when I'm interacting with some of our clients to see past what they did and instead see who they are, the full spectrum of who they are. And so like when you and I had talked before and you know I gave you the example of working with a on a personal level, it was difficult for me emotionally because I had experienced childhood sexual abuse and I know what their victims 
or I can imagine what their victims may have felt as a consequence of being victimized by this person. But my job is not to judge and my job is not to sit there and think about me at that moment. I'm there for them. And so what I had to do in that particular situation is focus on the admit that there are commonalities. People want to be like, I don't have anything in common with that. Could you repeat the last sentence? I lost you there for a moment again. Oh, yeah. Well, I think the first thing that, you know, that I have to do in working with clients that I'm, you know, that are pedophiles is admit that, yes, there are commonalities because we're both human. There are areas in our lives that I could probably find where we, we can meet on common ground. So, for instance, I know what it feels like because of my experience of being Paris's mother and getting all that hate mail and this terrible comments on social media. I know what it feels like to be hated because of who you are. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know what it feels like because of my, uh, early years as an addict and then my relapse to want something that I know I should not have and that I know is not good for me and those around me. I mean, it's not the same as, you know, molesting a child, but if I take out the behavior and instead focus on the emotional and psychological side of something, I can put myself in anybody's shoes and that allows me to help them without focusing on the behavior so much. And I think and I, I try to teach people how to do this because empathy also is something that can be learned. Most people are empathetic. Most people are not wired like Paris and completely, for the most part, unable to experience it. Most people are capable of it. But because of their learning, their value systems, you know, the environment they grew up in, um, you know, just the things that they learned from the environment, either deaden that empathy or dull it or cover it up. But people can learn to be more empathetic. Yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, working with people who... Let's put this one, might not apparently deserve attention and how to deal with those people, right, in your, in your work. So um, uh, what, what kind of support is it that you, you're offering these people? Well, 
let me back up a second. See, like, I guess the reason that I'm able to do what I do is because you just asked, you know, you just made the statement and I'm not calling you out, but Mm -hmm. you just made the statement, like you work with people that a lot of people would think don't deserve the attention. Exactly. My my mindset Mm -hmm. is that all people deserve the attention. I mean, I can't give it to everybody, Mm -hmm. but all people deserve, need, and in my view, deserve at least one person who will give them that attention. And then my mindset is also, if somebody doesn't, I mean, if we can't wrap our mind around the fact that a person who has just done something horrible, that's when they need the attention the most. Mm-hmm. If they had had some attention maybe beforehand, you know, and I know a lot of people are going to say, well, your child did something horrible, mm-hmm. you know, and may, I mean, maybe, maybe he did need more attention. I'm not sure. But if we cannot wrap our head around the fact that after somebody has done something horrible is when they most need the intention, then horrible things are going to keep happening. Mm-hmm. Because this is the time where it definitely should seem obvious that somebody needs the attention, whether they are the perpetrator or the victim of something traumatic. I can think of no better time for there to be attention for so many reasons to learn from them to support them so they don't go even further down a path because it's something i mean people somebody might have done something horrible but they can always do something more horrible Mm -hmm. the the depths of depravity go deep absolutely i mean i'm 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 being in in intentionally black and white now but um, one could say Look, there's this child molester who did horrible things, or there, there's this um, someone who murdered some people for no no obvious reason, and and they're locked up now. So why don't we forget about them? Why why care about them after what they did for for to to society? Let's put it this way. For the state of your own soul. <laughs> See, this is what I don't understand is. People will sit and they'll be like, that person is horrible, they're callous, they're cold, they're uncaring, lock them up and let them rot in prison. And I'm like, now you're being cold and callous and uncaring. Like you are becoming what you say you hate. Mm-hmm. And so... If for nothing else, the state of your own mind and your own soul give back something different. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you want to live in a world where there is kindness and unconditional love and then that's what you have to give. I mean, unless you're going to leave it up to everybody else to create that world. And then if that's the case, you can't sit around and complain if that's not the world you live in because you haven't done anything to try to help make that world. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, that's to me, that's just always like, and, to, and, and it's not even a question of emotion. It's a question of logic. Like, did you not hear what you just said? You said that person. Okay, I'll tell you a really good story to like get into a metaphor. My five-year-old all the time is like, you like metaphors too much, mom. <laughs> but when Paris, you know, my oldest was little. He was four or five years old. We lived in Atlanta and we lived in these like apartments that the family owned. And it was in a part of town where it was like, they call it Midtown Atlanta. So it wasn't quite downtown, but still a very, you know, urban, well-populated area. Mm-hmm. And it was on the corner of a very busy intersection. And then Herpen, you know, catty corner to the apartments was like the shopping area where a grocery store was. Mm-hmm. Well, Paris and I had stopped there after I picked him up from school to get some things at the grocery store and traffic was horrible. I mean, horrible. I sat in this parking lot for a good 20 minutes trying to get out of the parking lot just to get on the road where mm-hmm. I could tell I was going to take me another 15 or 20 minutes to get to my house that I could see. <laughs> I was getting very frustrated. Well, it was finally my turn to like pull into the line of cars that was actually going to get to go out onto the road the next time the light turned green. Mm-hmm. And this woman in another car cut me off and like took my turn from me. So I knew I was going to have to sit there another five minutes waiting for a chance to get on the road. And I just started cussing and being like, oh my God, I can't believe that woman just cut me off and blah, blah, blah. And I remember saying, she is being such a bitch. And Paris, who's very young, he looks at me and he was like, in the back, he's like, why are you getting so mad? He was always a very logical child. Why are you getting so mad? And I said, cause, I said, she's being a total, you know, Mm -hmm. bitch. And Paris looks at me and he goes, you mean just like you are right now? And I was like, yes, you're right. (laughs) I was like, I don't like talking to you. (laughs) But I mean, he complete, and children do this quite a bit. He completely called me out on the fact that I'm sitting here yelling at this woman for being irritating and frustrating. But that was exactly how I was acting. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do in the work that I do is create the world that I wished we all lived in. Mm -hmm. And some friends of mine call that naive. I call it hopeful Mm -hmm. because I really do think if we, if we, um, put it out there, hopefully people will begin to mirror it. 
Have you ever read any of the research on the fact that people actually have genes in their body up here in the front of their brain, especially called mirror genes? No, I've not heard of that. Oh, okay. It's fascinating research. So next time you sit down and you have an in-person conversation with somebody, there's a really simple experiment and you can see it at work. So next time you're talking to somebody face-to-face, pay attention to what you're doing. So if you are talking and then like say you within a minute or so, the person you're talking with will probably pick up their hand and do something like that. Or say I, you know, sit up right now. Then at some point, not long after I sit up, not now that we're talking about it probably, but you know, you're going to subconsciously sit up or yawning, you know, one person yawns, everybody starts to yawn. So scientists started to, to, you know, look into this and it turns out that we actually have an area in the front of our brain that causes us to mirror one another. And, you know, they hypothesize that the reason for this is because we're social beings. And so we're also narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Being social connection, we start to mirror one another to, to make us think on some subconscious level that, you know, we're alike. Therefore, we're connected. Therefore, we're going to bond and create this community and this group. So I just try to put forth actions and behaviors into the world that I hope other people will begin to mirror because that's what we do. You you said something in the interview, which I really liked. It's um, you said we measure our society by how we treat the ones who harmed us. Yeah. And, and I really like that because it says a lot about um, anyway, dignity that we have as as a society and as a species and um i really like the statement yeah i mean i'm i'm not the i mean somebody else has said that before me i mean it's uh i can't claim ownership of that (laughs) one but i mean i believe in the truth of it if if somebody somewhere doesn't stop the cycle you know you can't always be going back and forth of well you hurt me so i'm going to do this to you and well you did that to me so when i get the chance i'm going to you know do this to you you see it a lot like in power dynamics you know where you'll have a group of people who have been oppressed and then they justifiably are like you can't oppress us anymore we're going to you know, do something to change the system. And there's lots of different ways to change the system. But I'm sure you've heard the expression, the oppressors or the oppressed become the oppressors sometimes. I mean, that doesn't solve anything. You're just going back and forth. So there has to be a way, you know, and there's a lot of conversations about this when in regards to criminal justice and race relations and you know, even differences among religious groups and stuff, there has to be a process 
where wrongs are acknowledged and then rights are created that are that are based on you know what's right for us as a society and in answering hate hatred with hatred all you get is hatred you know answering um you know violence with violence well all you're gonna have is violence it doesn't necessarily make it better Mm. so i just think that but you know a lot of times people were like well you just want to let people get away no there has to be accountability you know Mm. accountability is the first step in in acknowledging that wrongs have been done i mean I have never said that I don't believe my child should have lost his freedom. He is a dangerous person and he should not be walking around in the world at this particular point in his life. And he did take something. I mean, he took something extremely precious. He took Ella's life away from her. There has to be an accounting for that. But what I have a problem with is how he has been removed from the world because he does still have things that he could offer to society. I mean, his intelligence is being entirely underutilized. He is a very intelligent person and there, you know, there are things that he could do even, you know, removed from society that could benefit like like what oh my gosh let's see right now they have paris like making leather belts and stuff who's to say that you know paris's mind couldn't be put to work analyzing research or you know hell even developing maybe you know trying to work with psychologists and and medical doctors and who are doing the research into people like Paris and and being like let them you know talk to people and be like well if there was anything you know what what motivates you what would make you you know want to change like don't just sit them in there and throw away the key he could, he could, he could, he could do useful things. I see. Have you ever looked into the Norwegian prison system? No, not at all. Is it? Yeah, Norway. Mm-hmm. Norway has a much different mentality in their prison systems than America does. Now, granted, it's a much smaller country, and they don't have as many people incarcerated. But do you remember the man? couple of, I don't remember how long it's been now, five, six years, and I can't say his name because I'm terrible with Norwegian names, but the Anders... Uh, Breivik, the guy who killed um, 80 children on the island. I mean, I don't know every single aspect of the case, but ultimately, you know, they came to the conclusion that... He has a mental health disorder, and he does. Mm-hmm. Like it, um, 
it was expressed with a, I mean, the lens that he showed it, that he used to show it was based on, you know, the extremism, the anti-immigration, our race and culture is being degraded. And, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a nationalist rhetoric that showed his mental disorder, but they locked him up. I mean, he's definitely locked up, but he's also provided with, as is every person in the Norwegian prison system that has committed a violent crime, you know, psychological intervention with the hope that with the support and the assistance that they will be able to show him like, okay, listen, (laughs) like we know you feel strongly about these issues, but you know, your brain also wasn't working quite right and maybe help him support him and help him to change those ways of thinking. Now, he's not showing too much inclination to do that, I believe, because at this point, there are certain people that are resistant to that type of help. But at least they're trying, you know. In America, we don't even try. Just walk them up. I know you're an um, opponent of the death sentence, and um, uh, many people would probably say, look, he's a perfect example. I mean, he killed 80 or something innocent children. Um, why, not, why not just now remove him from this planet and make sure he just never do this again and, and you know, get rid of people like him? So what, what would you say to, to people who think along those lines? Oh, lots of things. Um, well, if you murder him, because you know, in America, when somebody is executed, that is what goes on their death certificate, homicide, because mm-hmm. it's the unnatural killing of another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, murder does not justify murder. The example that I give is you have small children, right? Say they go to school one day and one of your little girls like just hit somebody, just like hauled off and was like, I don't like you and smack, smack, smack. And the teacher calls you and they're like, your little girl hit somebody and you bring her home and you spank her. And while you're spanking her, you're like, you're not supposed to hit people. <laughs> I mean, it does not make sense. We tell our children and each other that you're not supposed to kill people. The only time we ever tell people that it's okay to kill somebody else is if you're defending yourself, truly defending yourself against imminent death and harm. Then it's like you get a moral pass. And I get that. I mean, I'm all for self-defense, true self-defense. But to be like, you're not supposed to kill people and you killed somebody and so we're going to kill you, it doesn't make sense. And every single one of those people that has been executed, they have families, they have mothers, they have other people that mourn them. 
hopefully, the majority of them do. So you're creating more victims. You're not doing justice. You're creating more victims of murder. Um, in 2005, the United States ruled, the United States Supreme Court ruled that children under the age of 18 are not eligible for the death penalty. Well, that was in 2005. Ella was murdered by Paris in 2007. Or 2005, if it had been before the date the ruling came down, and he was eligible for the death penalty, and then he killed Ella, then how would that have helped me? It wouldn't have brought her back. Mm -hmm. And then I would have two dead children, Mm -hmm. and both of their death certificates would say homicide, and I'm pretty sure I would not be sitting here now if that had happened. Mm-hmm. So that would have brought about no, it's not it's just at no all. Good. Yeah, it's no good. And then, I mean, the whole, you know, you made the comment, prevent them from committing future acts. No one can read the future. Mm-hmm. A future act. In fact, here in America, the research and statistics show that 98%, give or take, 96, let's just say 95 to 98% of people who commit homicide never commit another murder again. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't commit other criminal acts, but is that because they're criminal or is it because they didn't? have the intervention and support they needed after committing a criminal act. So, so do you believe in second chances? Yes. What about um, Paris? I mean, he, when will he get out of uh, prison? Um, if he's held the entire time, hmm. he will be released in 20... 47. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's um, eligible for parole at an earlier date or? He's eligible in 2027, mm-hmm. but he won't get out when he's eligible. In the state of Texas, he's a capital offender because the person he killed was under the age of six. Mm-hmm. Capital offenders spend typically 85% of their sentence incarcerated and then when if he's paroled out he would be paroled out on a very highly supervised parole Mm. so but would would you give him another chance so to speak if he got out early i believe i have given paris many chances right? To be a different person. He has not taken any of those chances, and I don't think he is capable of taking those chances. So this is what I usually tell people. If he was released 
today based on my experience of him to date, I would not feel safe around my child. But I also would not go to the state and be like, don't you dare release him. I would go to the state and say, this has been my experience of my child. This is what I am afraid could happen. But ultimately, it's your decision to make. I say all the time, I am so glad I am not the one who has the power to make the decision about whether he stays or gets out. Because I wouldn't know what to do. I personally have not seen anything in Paris that convinces me that he has changed. That he is capable of empathy, that he feels remorse. And because he lacks those qualities, I think it makes him dangerous. So I wouldn't want to be around him. And I certainly wouldn't want him around my five-year-old. But I is, would... Go ahead. Is, is Paris um, writing letters to um, Phoenix? He was. I put a stop to it. Okay. But you stopped it. Okay. Yeah, because he wasn't really writing letters to Phoenix. He was writing letters to me saying they were for Phoenix. And finally, I was just like, listen, you know, just... Phoenix is five years old. These letters that you're writing are obviously not meant for a five-year-old. Mm. And, you know, you're talking to me, so just talk to me. Mm. Um, you know, and then, because I, I, you know, I tell Paris and I tell Phoenix, I tell Paris, I'm like, if Phoenix wants to have a relationship with you, that is a decision he will have to make himself when he is an adult. I'm not encouraging it, but what I tell Phoenix is, you know, I, I love your brother. I do not trust your brother. Mm -hmm. I don't expect you. I mean, I say this in five-year-old terms, but I don't expect because I do they have no relationship mm. and uh, you know one day he'll have to make his own choice mm. um, you mentioned that you've forgiven um, Paris mm -hmm. how do you forgive someone who did something like that I mean I mean not in a specific case but um, There can be anything where it's hard to to forgive someone, whether that's it's been an accident, whether it's been uh, someone caused harm intentionally. I mean, there are many cases where you it almost fe feels impossible to to forgive someone. How do you learn to for forgive, and how do you kind of open your heart to to someone who intentionally or unintentionally caused harm to you, or makes it hard to forgive? So I think the first thing that one has to do is. Oh, say it again, please. Sorry, the, the connection. You forget. Sorry, could, could you just add, um... oh, I mean, I think the first. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah. I think the first thing that people have to do is define what forgiveness is and mm -hmm. what it 
independent. Um, I think that forgiveness, again, is one of those words like good, bad, sociopath, that, you know, we, we hear it and then this one image pops into our heads of what it is. And forgiveness is very nuanced. Um, it is not this black and white act that we do. So for me, what forgiveness means is letting go of the anger and the rage and seeing a person who harms you as just that, a person who has harmed you and try to um, which means you see them as human like you know people tell me all the time Paris is a monster no he's not he's a human being and so For me, it was an act of letting go of the anger. And I did that and wanted to do that and was able to do that for many reasons and in many ways. I wanted to do that because in the long run, especially with Paris, because he doesn't care if I forgive him or not. You know, I don't think he even quite understands the concept because of his sociopathy and narcissism. Um, But for me, it was getting to the point where I realized that I was harming myself (laughs) by holding on to so much anger. I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, but there is a... Um, expression that I've heard before and they were like uh, not forgiving is like you know drinking a cup of poison and expecting the other person to die right yeah so as time went on you know I realized that all this rage that was justifiably consuming me was harming me And I didn't want to walk around feeling like that for the rest of my life because I'm pretty sure I couldn't have without destroying myself. So that was a reason that I wanted to and needed to. And the, I tell people all the time, forgiveness is really a very selfish act. You're doing it for you. Right? It's, it's people are like, oh, forgiveness, it's the epitome of Christianity or whatever, but it is selfish. <laughs> That's just what I believe. You do it for you because you want the chance of having a life not consumed by anger. <laughs> and then the way that I was able to do that, I mean, the fact that he's my son and I loved him, love him helps because there's that to fall back on 
And, I, you know, I tell, I'm, I'm very honest about the fact that if somebody else had murdered Ella, I may have walked down a completely different path. You know, the fact it that sense. I might have just said, I hate them and run with it, you know. But the fact that it was Paris, like, it's what made it so devastating. But it's also one of the things that motivated me to take the path I did because he is my child. Um, but what helped me to forgive and let go of the anger is I learned, I educated myself. I didn't accept that he's a monster and he's evil. I, I tried to figure out like, okay, he obviously isn't a monster and I know he's not evil, but what is he? Who is he? And the more I learned about sociopaths and narcissists and the way they think and how that influences how they act and just coming to grips with the fact that he is who he is as much as I am who I am, you know, I, I am who I am and just accepting him. Right. I mean, it's like you have to understand somebody, accept them for who they are, and then decide if you can be there with them, how they are. To walk into it expecting to change them or convince them to be some other way, you're just set up for failure. So learning about Paris really helped to, to be able to forgive. But then the last thing about forgiveness that I always tell people, it's not like this one-time thing. I didn't wake up one day around seven years ago or whatever and be like, oh, that's it. No, I'm, done. I'm done processing it. You're forgiven and it's time to move on. No, I have to forgive Paris almost every day sometimes, depending on where his head is at, you know? I mean anniversaries we you know we started talking about anniversaries every anniversary day i go through this whole process of forgiveness all over again it all comes back like the feelings and what he did and blah 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 so it's a process especially if the person that you need to forgive is still in your life. But I don't know anybody that has suffered a trauma, whether it be childhood sexual abuse or domestic violence or the murder of a loved one, or even, you know, people that have committed violent crimes or criminal acts and, you know, they need to forgive themselves um it's not like a a one-time thing it's process it's something that you must work at 
on, on your website, you wrote that um, Paris has taught you what love is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the dedication in my book that I, I write, it's dedicated to my three children and it's dedicated, you know, to Paris for uh, showing me, teaching me what love is. And to Ella for showing me how love acts. And to Phoenix for, you know, showing me that love really does conquer all. Yeah. And, and the reason, you know, that I say that Paris taught me what love is, is because, you know, it all, the, when I had Paris was the first time that I personally experienced like I mean I loved my mother very much growing up still do love my mother very much but like I said earlier it always felt conditional on you know her side And so, you know, when I was younger, maybe it was, I experienced it as like a pure, powerful love. Maybe I can't recall too much. Um, but with Paris, you know, when, when I saw Paris for the very first time, I call it like the rapture there was just like this moment where I saw Paris and like this whole new world up for me. And, you know, I have certainly learned a lot uh, through Paris because of Paris and in spite of Paris about that world of love. And I say Ella taught me how love acts because, you know, Even in the short time that Ella was here, she was she was very much the lover, you know. She used to tell me that, you know, her little friends, whatever, like we needed to adopt them because their mom wouldn't let them do something and they <laughs> needed a nice mom or, you know. She, she just was always the one who... She told my mom one time, because I was really upset with my mother, and, you know, she told my mother that she knew that I was mad at my mother, but that Ella, you know, loved her anyway. I mean, Ella was just, you know, she was, oh, I mean, she was a lover. And so a lot of times when I try to figure out, like, how to be in the world, I think about how Ella was in the short time she was here. I tell people all the time in my speeches, I'm like, we should all act more like four-year-olds, positive side of four-year-olds. Um, and, you know, I say Phoenix taught me that, that because, you know, when I found out that I was having Phoenix Even though it had been seven, eight years since Ella died and, and I had 
created this foundation and was doing all of these things to help other people and, you know, had pulled through myself relatively well, I think there was still a part of me that was living with the dead, right? There was still a part of me that was not fully engaged in my own life. And when I found out that I was having Phoenix and then when Phoenix was born and then, you know, 12 hours later, they whisked him off to the intensive care unit because he had this horrible heart problem. It, it, um, you know, it, he is what it took for me to come back fully present in the moment. Uh, you know, I like to tell people that until Phoenix, I lived with one foot in the land of the living and one foot in the land of the dead. Like I was straddling that grave and there was still a possibility that I could have fallen into it, I guess, at any moment. But Phoenix took that possibility away. Like, I know he really, Phoenix really like, you know how everybody around the world now is all about like mindfulness, mindfulness, living in the present. And a lot of people think like, if you're going to be mindful, you have to have calm and quiet and, you know, but I, I don't think so. Phoenix is not calm and he's not quiet, but when I'm with Phoenix is when I experience the most mindfulness I've ever experienced because I'm choosing to stay in that moment with him because I know now after Paris and Ella, how amazing those moments are. And I also know that you don't know how many of them you're going to get. Mm -hmm. So my crazy, difficult, opinionated five-year-old is what keeps me grounded in the present, very mindful. Yeah. If um, people want to reach out to you, bid for help with your organization, or if um, they're interested in your work or they want to book you as a speaker, how can they reach out to you? Uh, just Google my name. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you can. We have a website, www.ellafound.org. And, or seriously, they can just Google Charity Lee and it's like all out there. But the website's the best way. We're also on Facebook. I think we're on Twitter. Pretty sure we're on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's it. We don't do Instagram. And if, if they need any help, if they had trauma, if they had, you know, any, uh, if they're on either side of, of, uh, Connect of violence, they can reach out to you and then you can um, connect them to people who can help or you can be of yeah. assistance to find them. Yeah, you know, what I, um, you know, what I want people to know is I am welcome to anybody at all reaching out to me. I get a lot of people though who, you know, I don't know and they don't even live anywhere near where I could like actually meet with them and you know, they want it. They want to know, like, this is a terrible thing that happened to me. 
how do I deal with it? And, you know, the only thing I can really do in situations like that is be like, well, you know, here is what I suggest. Find someone to talk to that you trust or find a good counselor or, and I can help, you know, I can help some helping people do that. But I, you know, I'm not a counselor and I don't offer like online counseling. I, I try to, you know, work with people locally, but globally just let people into my life so they can kind of learn about it themselves and take what they like and leave the rest. Maybe that's helpful. Probably get a hundred to a hundred and fifty emails a day. Um, but everybody is more than welcome to reach out. Just don't expect that by sending me an email, all your problems are going to be solved. <laughs> and then, um, there's the movie. A lot of people have found that watching the movie is helpful because what I get a lot of is, wow, like I, I don't, in a lot of what I get is people will read my story or watch the movie and they'll give me like, I thought I had it bad, but damn. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks. <laughs> The movie can be helpful to people just to help them realize like they're not alone. There are people all around the world that are dealing with problems and this is how it can be dealt with. Uh, for people that want to send me hate mail, you can just tell them don't even bother. Save your breath. Go do something positive instead. Like, I've heard it all. You're not going to tell me anything that's going to make me be like, oh, my God, nobody said that to me before. And he's right. I am a loser. Um, but the, the what I can really suggest to people is just go and be what you want the world to be. Start with yourself. Don't be ashamed of anything that has happened to you or anything you may have done. Show yourself a little self-love, a little compassion, and then give that back to the world. But if somebody is in crisis, the first thing they need to do is they need to either call 911 if you're in America or reach out to somebody local who can immediately help you. Because I do get people that send me emails and they're like, I'm suicidal. And I'm like, I didn't even see this until now. I sent it five days ago. Like we can't help with crisis care. Um, so I think that's about it. Um, so I want to thank you for this conversation. It's been really, really great. And I want to thank you for sharing the, the, also your emotions and, and uh, giving people, I think the essence is that, that there is hope, even if the situation is, seems hopeless and uh, we all can find hope at the end of the tunnel.
Um, so, so I want to thank you for that. And um, there's always two questions that I ask the people at the end of each conversation. And um, the first question is, this is about extraordinary people who make a change in this world and who do good in this world and who are inspiring like yourself. Um, so who would you consider to be an extraordinary person? Um, well, I, like I told you when we talked before, one of the main people that has inspired me or inspired me when I first started doing all this work publicly is a man named Suja Graham. Mm -hmm. And he is a death row exoneree. And he... Uh, he inspired me early on to, you know, just be a revolutionary, to, to be confident in my own message, even though my message of, you know, inclusivity, I guess, when it comes to how to treat victims and perpetrators is not a widely practiced or accepted one. Um, but he just inspired me and motivated me to just speak my mind as I felt it needed to be spoken. And his story is fascinating, just fascinating fascinating it encompasses you know being a death row exoneree fighting for civil rights you know um the the black power movement back in the day in prison and i mean he's just he has a fascinating story so i i recommend Sergio graham okay and um the last question and i want to close the conversation with that um, is what's your message to the world? What's, what's the message that's closest to, the, to your heart that you want to give to everyone who's watching this or to uh, who's listening to this? Um, I, I guess what my message to the world has always been is experience right oh sorry sorry now the, the connection dropped sorry 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 the connection dropped oh, oh, okay <laughs> i guess my message has always been um you know own your story take own your story it's your voice use that voice and at the end of the day you know always make your decisions based on love i mean like you just said mine i think is a story of hope in spite of the odds and to just know that as long as you're breathing there is definitely hope tragedy is not the end of the world in fact it can be the so I guess that's my message. Thank you for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And um, I will post, uh, put a link to all of your um, 
to your website and to your foundation and below this video for everyone to watch. So okay. thank you for your time and um, hope to talk to you again. All right, thanks. And thanks for the hookup with Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching. And in a few seconds, you'll hear about the extraordinary person that I'm going to talk to in my next conversation. But before that, I need to ask you for your help. See, finding people who inspire and motivate you to make a change, that's what's most important to me. But to connect you with these amazing people and to bring you conversations that you will not find anywhere else, I need you to become a part of our journey. So please get involved and leave a comment below with your own questions and maybe even tell me who I should talk to next. And if you know anyone who might like this conversation, then please share it because I'm sure that they will like it too and it will help to grow this channel and to make an impact together. And by the way, on my website, you will find all current and upcoming episodes, including show notes and transcripts, background info, books and websites of my guests, podcast links, and much more. And once you become an email subscriber, there is always some exclusive content, so don't forget to sign up, and I'll see you in the next conversation. In the next episode, Rob talks to Dr. Rob Morrison. For two decades, he was the host of the much-loved TV program, The Curiosity Show. As one of the early pioneers of TV science shows, Dr. Morrison became an education icon in the 14 countries around the world where the show aired. He uncovered a world of scientific experiments that could be tried out at home, transformed science into something that was for everyone, and inspired a generation of kids to pursue scientific careers. Rob and Dr. Morrison will talk about how science education has changed in the past decades, the surprising reason why the successful show was stopped, how income disparity creates a two-class education system, and much more. Join the conversation now.